you want to open with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. So tonight we're going to be continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter, looking at uh, the next two verses as we continue our trek and our journey through the book. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 7 and verses 8 tonight. My goal is just to break down these uh, verses one by one, and then we're going to focus on a bit of application of these verses towards the end. So if you, you have not already, I would ask with you to turn with me in your Bibles. And if you're still turning there, or if you're not, I want to uh, make one brief note before we start, that if you look at these verses, and if you read them really quickly, or if you're familiar with them, verse uh, 7 is uh, much like what we talked about uh, two weeks ago. Uh, we were off last week, but two weeks ago about wives. So you might read this text and think, you know, uh, I'm not a wife or I'm not a husband, so how does this verse uh, apply to me, or does it even apply to me? And it does. And I want to invite you to, to look at that in a different light tonight, and I assure you that these verses matter. They're important, and, and they're important for you to, to know and to learn and to, to grow from. So I believe if we look at this text, uh, we fall into a few different camps. So... Some of us might be over here in this camp. You might be standing here today. You might be a a husband. Uh, Some of you might be single men, and you're in the camp over here. And you might one day be a husband, and you might be looking in from from that perspective. And then on the flip side, ladies, you might be over here in this camp, and you might be currently married to your husband. You're over here. Or maybe you're over here, and you're a, a single lady. You're dating, or maybe you're even engaged, and... You're not married yet, but one day you will be, so you can look from that perspective. And then you might be single, and maybe one day you might never get married. And then you're like, okay, well, what does that mean for me? Well, I would argue that you would at least know someone who does have a husband, and these verses still apply to you because you can help encourage and counsel them as well. So I just want to uh, say regardless of what camp you fall into. I think we would all say we fall in, in at least one of those camps. And these verses do apply. They're important, and I think we have an awesome opportunity for us as we open up God's Word and see what it means for us tonight. So that's my prayer, that we would be encouraged and that we would grow from the Scriptures tonight. So read with me 1 Peter uh, verses, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. We begin in verse 7. Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let us pray. Father God, as we just prayed, or rather we just sang, Lord, we need you. Lord, every hour, every waking minute, Lord, we need you. And we need you right now in this time. Lord, we humbly bow before you and ask that you would do a work as we look into your word tonight. I pray that you would pierce hearts. I pray that you would help me to speak with clarity. And I pray that we would be both encouraged and convicted walking out, that we would be changed men and women. And I pray, God, that you would open up our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things out of your law, that you would 
not just open our eyes to behold wondrous things, but you would also give us understanding that we would be able to live. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we start, I think it's important to recap the last uh, month of where we're at in this point. Uh, because Peter's really continuing, uh, at least in verse 7, this last aspect of uh, suffering and submission, which is what he, been, he, what he started uh, back in verse 13 of chapter 2. So if you just look back, especially at the rate we've been going, that's quite a while ago. It's actually last year. Um, and Chris spoke on that in the beginning, uh, or rather at the end of the year. And he, he talked about this aspect of submission. And he talked about submission mainly with the relationships of citizens to human institutions. And he went on and he explained how we are to submit and also undermine these in a biblical way, these government authorities, right? And then uh, Chase picked up the following week and he, he continued that example that Peter talks about. And he, he now took that aspect of uh, submission to slaves and their masters. So they are to voluntarily submit to their slave masters. <clears throat> and then we continue down, and, and, and Peter gives us this great example of Christ and how he endured the greatest form of unjust suffering. And if you look in verse 22, we read, He committed no sin, neither was the seat found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we see this great example of Christ submitting to unjust suffering because he committed no sin. And we talked about what that means. And then we also looked at how Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father, to him who judges justly. And then we, we talked about this imputed righteousness and, and how Christ has taken our filthiness and he has given us his, his righteousness, right? And, and then we see two weeks ago this final example of submission. And it was directly, uh, Peter was directly speaking to wives and how they should submit to their own, health, own husbands in the same way that citizens should submit to government slaves to their slave masters, and so forth. So, as I mentioned earlier, I want to break down these verses one at a time, and I want to look first at verse 7. So now you can turn with me uh, with your eyes at verse 7. So now we see this word, likewise. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a lot, a lot to go through, so we're going to break it down uh, piece by piece. <clears throat> we might read this uh, verse and say, well, why did Peter use six verses to talk to wives, but he only used one verse to talk to husbands? And that's a fair question. It's a good question, but it's a question that I don't have the answer to. But what I can tell you is that just because the length of the verses are not the same, does not mean the impact or the weight of what Peter is trying to relate to his readers is any less. He is not saying women need to hear more and men need to hear less. That would be a wrong interpretation of looking at these texts. What we do see is that Peter is trying to speak into the lives of the husbands and the lives of women and their wives. 
What we have to keep in mind is the cultural context. Remember, women in this Greco-Roman time were treated as lesser than men. And we know that they were viewed that way and they were apt to more they were apt to experience more forms of unjust suffering because of that. Peter knows that, he's aware of that, and that's why he addresses them and gives them guidance in that regard. Now, men too need guidance and Peter gives them guidance just in a different manner. As we've seen in recent weeks, Peter has continued to talk about this theme of submission, right? And we have seen him speak directly to citizens in regard to submission to government. We've seen them talk seen him talk about servants to their masters and last two weeks wives to their own husbands. So now we look at that theme and we would read verse 7 and say, "Okay, submission, right?" No. Peter does not say submission. But we, we want to look at this first word. He says likewise. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, I said this word is translated to in the same way. And Peter said back in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, likewise, wives. So in the same way as slaves submit to their slave masters, as citizens submit to human governments and institutions, in that same way you are to voluntarily submit to your husband. So we would read this word likewise and say, okay, so now, Peter, are you saying likewise in the same manner that husbands are now to submit to their wives? No. In fact, you will find that nowhere in Scripture. You can look, you can search, and we can spend the rest of the time at Refuge tonight searching for the, the text that says husbands should submit to their own wives. We won't find it. It's just simply not there. And we know that Peter is not speaking in terms of submission to the, to the husband, but he's talking to them in regard to their authority. We know that Scripture is clear. The husband has given, been given a distinct role in the family aspect, and his role is to be the head of the home. And his role is to assume this higher authority. And he's speaking in light of this. This is the direction that Peter is getting at here in verse 7. Peter is speaking to husbands about the use of their authority over their wives. And he's urging them to consider the use of their authority. So I want to summarize verse 7 with four considerations for husbands. Four considerations. And I want to tell you guys them up front so that you guys know where I'm headed. Number one, consider your wife intellectually. Consider your wife intellectually. Number two, Consider your wife physically. Consider your wife physically. Number three, consider your wife emotionally. And finally, number four, consider your wife spiritually. So like I said, we're going to take them one by one. So number one, consider your wife intellectually. So if we look at the first part of verse seven, we read, live with your wives, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Or as the New King James puts it, dwell with them with understanding. Dwell with them with understanding. What is Peter talking about? Well, he is speaking about knowledge. He is saying, live with your wives according to knowledge. This is the, a, a more literal translation of this phrase. He says, he is referring to the intellectual knowledge of the wife. Remember, he is addressing husbands and he's, using, uh, he's addressing them in the sense of their authority. 
right? He wants them to consider what he is telling them in, in regard to this authority. He says, know your wife intellectually. Know your wife intellectually. He's saying to communicate to them in such a way that, they know, that you husbands know your wife's moods, feelings, needs, fears, hopes, passions, dreams, etc. We could go on and on. Peter is saying, know your wife. And he is saying that we should know our wives through meaningful communication. My wife often tells me uh, that I listen not so, not so well. And she says that I listen because I listen to respond. I don't listen to understand. So she says, if you think about that statement, it's, it's, it's quite profound. She says, you're listening to respond. You're not listening to understand what I'm trying to say to you. So if you think about it, say, say she's coming to me, she has something on her heart, and, and she's coming, she, she's talking to me, and I'm just, you know, I'm waiting for her to get done. I'm like chomping at the bit. I'm not really paying attention. I'm, I'm not looking at her. You, you can tell I'm not engaged. I'm just waiting for her to done, for her to get done, for me to say, yeah, okay, great, and I just want to talk about whatever I want to talk about. In that regard, I'm just listening to respond. I don't really care what she has to say. But on the flip side, listening to understand is listening to understand in such a way you're listening to the person and knowing what they're communicating to you. You're looking to them. You're looking at their eyes. You're looking at them. And you're understanding. You're not just throwing up what they're telling you. You're looking at them. You're engaging. You're, you're understanding. And you can sympathize. You can empathize with what, what, what you're telling them. So as we continue on that note of communication and this intellectual knowing of the wife, I think Ephesians 4, 15 gives us the antidote to horrible communication. It reads, speak the truth in love. That's it. Speak the truth in love. The issue is not often that we are not speaking to one another, but it is that we are not speaking to one another in love. Right? We can often speak to one another. We can often communicate to one another. But that's not the issue. The issue is that we're not communicating to one another in love. Just like the example of listening to respond and listening to understand. Warren Wearsby comments on this beautifully. He says, It has been well said of love. Truth is hypocrisy. I'm, I'm sorry, let me start that again. It is well said of love without truth is hypocrisy. And truth without love is brutality. We need both love and truth if we are going to grow in our understanding of one another. So I'm, I'm going to read that one more time because I really think we need to grasp this. Warren says, It has been well said of love. Without truth is hypocrisy. And truth without love is brutality. We need both truth and love if we are going to grow in our understanding of one another. Uh, we need both the truth, because if we don't have the truth, if we don't have this knowledge of truth, which we, we know truth is from the word, if we don't have this, we're hypocritical, we're, we're, we're hypocrisy, right? But if we have the truth and, and we don't love, we're just brutal. 
We're, we're just going out as heresy hunters. We're, not, we're just in attack mode. We're, we're not gentle, loving, gracious. We're none of those things. We need them both. We need them both. So that's the first thing. Consider your wife intellectually. Moving down in this verse, we see uh, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Sorry, this is number two. Consider your wife physically. Consider your wife physically. And when you think about physicality, it's not what you think. It's not in a sexual manner. He's saying it rather in a different light. He's saying showing honor, we're back in the verse in verse 7, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Here we're going to look and find our next two considerations for husbands. And they can be summarized in showing or giving honor to the wife. When Peter says showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, he is not speaking that they are a lesser person. He is not saying that. Certainly not lesser mentally, morally, or even spiritually. He is not saying that. In fact, we can see evidence of that in Scripture by the use of the word vessel. This is not a belittling word. This is not a a negative word. We we know this word is used uh, throughout Scripture to affirm that men and women are created equally by God, created and intended for his use. We see examples of this clearly shown in Romans chapter 9 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, among others. We see it used as earthly pots as well. Peter is speaking about the large physical stature of a man, which can be said of most men compared to their wife. Most men are physically stronger or bigger than their wife. And Peter is very simple in what he is trying to get across to men. Men are physically stronger, thus men are Thus, women are physically weaker. That's what he's getting at. Peter is telling the husbands not to use their physical strength over their wives. He's saying, consider your spouse. He's urging them to not take advantage of their physical superiority over women. He is calling them not to use this authority to be domineering or abusive. Dwell with them also includes that the husband would physically provide for material needs of the home. He is not saying women cannot have a job. He is not saying that women cannot work or even have a good successful career. But he is saying, and the Bible would affirm, that the woman's first responsibility is to take care of her home. And we can see this clearly laid out in Titus chapter 2 and verses 4 through 5. We also see that a a husband's clear responsibility as well is to provide, and the main way is physically. And we can see that clearly shown as well in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. So consider your wife physically. Moving along to number 3, we see consider your wife emotionally. The third consideration is showing the wife honor by considering her emotional state. Think with me for a second. I want you to imagine something in your head. And if this is not you in this illustration, just try to, try to set yourself in, in this shoes, in these people's shoes. Think back when you were dating. Think back before you were married to your wife. You, you were pretty considerate to her emotional well-being, for sure. You were dating her. You did everything you wanted to try to please her, to get her attention. You made sure that she had everything that she needed. You probably even spoiled her and Uh, got her everything she asked for, or maybe you at least tried to with every penny you could afford. You were overall a pretty nice and and thoughtful guy. 
then you get engaged and you continue this consideration for her feelings and her emotions as you prepare now for the wedding's festivities and this big season of life. A, a lot of emotions, a lot of transitions, and a lot of changes are, are on the brink. The wedding day comes, you guys say, I do, and the honeymoon quickly comes after. It comes after that. It comes and it goes. And unfortunately, for a majority of marriages, so does the consideration for the emotions of the wife. Husbands tend to get comfortable. They forget to be kind, and they begin to take for granted their wife. This is the sad but true reality of so many men in our congregation and in our church. We have this emotional consideration for our wife when we date them, when we get engaged, even in the honeymoon stage. But quickly after, that is so trickled down and gets down to little to no consideration for their wife and their, her emotions. But Peter is not going to have that. He says, show them honor. That doesn't mean give in. It means you can disagree, but still respect her and be gentle in how you handle that disagreement. To show honor means that the husband respects his wife's feelings, thoughts, and desires. We see this clearly as Paul reminds husbands in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 19, he says, Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. To love your wife means to not deal harshly with her. Did you get that, husbands? To love your wife means to not deal harshly with her. I would encourage all of you men to memorize that verse. Memorize Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. It needs to be the forefront of our minds each and every day as we seek to live out by God's grace. Men, do not forget. Do not forget that you have been given a great responsibility as a spiritual leader of the home. You are called to love your wife as Paul so clearly lays out in Ephesians 5. So much so that Paul says you are to love her as Christ has loved his bride in the church. All of us husbands in the room can say amen to that. I know I certainly can. God, we need your grace. We need your help to love our wives as Christ has loved your bride in the church. Lord, it's such a weighty task. God, help, it. help us. And fourthly, we see from this text, consider your wife your wife spiritually. Consider your wife spiritually. The fourth and final consideration that we see from verse 7 is to consider your wife on a spiritual level. We see this from the last part of verse 7. We read, Since they are heirs of you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The first part of ver- this verse, or the first part of this section rather, is Peter saying, You are joint heirs of the grace. Rather, you are heirs with each other of the grace of life, but it can be better translated as since you are joint heirs. That's a better translation. It's a more literal translation. It says, since you are joint heirs with you. Since the wife is a joint heir with you. As if husbands needed more to consider than what we have already talked about so far, now they have to consider their spiritual need. Peter reminds them of this equality that men and women both have in the eyes of the Lord. Husbands and wives, you were joint heirs together. You are both ministers of the gospel together. 
Husbands, even though you have been given a greater authority and responsibility within the marriage as being the head of the home, that does not negate the fact that you are both equal in spiritual privilege and eternal importance. Your marital responsibility does not add up to a greater or more important status in the kingdom of God. You are both heirs to the promise. We see this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, you are heirs together, equal in Christ Jesus. And at the end of verse 7, Peter gives a warning to the husbands in terms of prayer. It reads, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Why, husbands, are you to live with your wives in an understanding way? Why are you to show them honor as the weaker vessel? So that your prayers may not be hindered. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? The way you treat your wife has an effect on your prayer life. This is not speaking explicitly only to prayers that you pray with your wife. This is not what Peter is saying. And we know this because explicitly in verse 7, Peter is directly talking to husbands. And the your here in verse 7 is directed to husbands individually. So he's encompassing their entire prayer life. Not just the prayers, not just the praise, rather, wow. Not just the prayers you pray with your wife, but every prayer you pray. Peter is speaking uh, as this as a whole. We can accurately imply by this statement that Peter assumes husbands and wives are going to pray together. And not only that, we can know a couple's prayer life often uh, excuse me, gives a good representation of the overall health of the home. It is not a manner of prayer apart, but it is the unity of prayer together. This is an aspect of family worship together. This hindering is viewed as a fatherly discipline as we see laid out in Hebrews chapter 12. This hindering. It's a reminder that it is good that we are being disciplined. For the father loves those whom he disciplines. In fact, it says he chastises them. Peter says clearly that our prayers as husbands can indeed be hindered. That should wake you up if you're a husband. What is this hindrance? Well, in short, it's sin. And it's mainly the sin of not living, rather not loving and living with your wife in an understanding way. Peter gives us many warnings explicitly, even just in this few three chapters, of what a sinful life looks like and how you are not to live. Wayne Grudem comments on this. which This is a really, really, really powerful quote. So listen. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband can expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing her honor. So, the part one of this, of this quote. We can't expect any good spiritually if we're not a prayerful people, husband and wife alike. We cannot expect anything good to come of us if we're not prayerful people because what we're saying when we're not praying is saying, God, I got this. 
I don't need you. I don't need you. I'm good. I got this under control. So we can't expect anything good to come if we're not a prayerful people. And secondly, we can't, as husbands, expect to be a prayerful people if we're not living with our wives in an understanding way. If we're not loving her as Christ has loved his bride in the church, we can't expect that we're going to have an effective prayer life. That's just not the case. That's just not reality. And it's living in sin when we're not living with our wives in an understanding way. So now let's move down to verse 8. Verse 8 says, Finally, all of you have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. At the beginning of verse 8, we read this word, finally, translated in the ESV. And it can be translated to sum it all up. This word finally can be translated to sum it all up. So we know that Peter is now transitioning into a new part of the letter. He's finally, well rather he's not transitioning. In a sense he is. He's, he's concluding this part of the letter. And he's, he's wrapping up this long, se- this long section about submission. Long ago in, in, in chapter 2 and verse 13. He's, he's wrapping everything up. And he says... He's trying to encourage these different groups of people that he's not just now spoken to, and the citizens, and the wives, and the husbands, and the slaves, and all these different people, and he's trying to give them a word of encouragement. Remember, they're suffering, and, and oftentimes they're suffering uh, unjustly. So he's now giving a bit of encouragement to them in verse 8. And he's not just telling them to deal with each other in this way, in verse 8, but he's also telling them to deal with uh, the people who treat them this, with this suffering. He's, he's telling them to uh, treat others with what I'm about to tell you in verse 8. And we know this because all of you is followed up by, after he says finally, he says all of you. This all of you is everybody who's just, who's just been talking to since chapter 2. And not only them but also us here today. All over this letter, we can clearly recognize there's one consistent theme. What is that theme? Suffering. And in verse 8, Peter gives five characteristics that can bring a life of blessing as you endure through suffering, which Chase will be talking about more next week in the following verses, in uh, verse 9 and a couple others. But in verse 8, Peter gives five characteristics He says, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We're going to break them down briefly, uh, one at a time. But an important thing to note, Peter is not saying, all of you, just pick one of the five. Just pick one of the five, focus on that, and you'll be good. That's not what what he's saying. He's saying, you need to focus on all five of these things, what I'm about to tell you. And Edmund Clowney gives a good illustration uh, to keep in mind. He says, These are not virtues chosen at random. Like the fingers of a hand, they radiate from one center and work together. The key to them is the love of grace. They reflect grace, love, and compassion of Jesus Christ. So, as we look at these five characteristics individually, I want you guys to keep that image of a hand working together. So think of the five different characteristics that we're going to talk about. And at the center of that is what? Grace. Grace that we have received from Jesus Christ. And in order for these five characteristics to work, 
We need the grace, just like the center of my hand and the palm connects all these fingers and they work together. So keep that in mind. So now we look at this first characteristic. The first characteristic Peter gives is a unity of mind. And he is referring to a oneness or a like-mindedness that is in harmony among the church, among the brothers and sisters. The oneness is especially in light of the gospel. So this unity he's, he's calling them to is to the unity of the gospel. Some translations might say unity of spirit, which refers to sharing the same thoughts, attitudes, in one harmony. Think of it like a choir. They are all singing in unison as they work properly in order to achieve the same goal. They sing together. That's their goal. Many voices singing the same song, creating one beautiful array of exquisite sound that is pleasing to the ears. That is the same way the church should be. One living, harmonious people. And this is the type of living uh, that Peter actually addressed earlier on in chapter 1 in verse 13 when he says, set your hope on Christ. Now, it is far too often as we people in the church get caught up in these differences and they often lead to great division and conflict. This ought not be the case. This unity, rather, is important to note that unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. Remember, we're all different members. Some of you are the tongue, some are your feet, some are your hand, some of you might even be the armpit, right? These are all parts of the body. Yet you're still one body. And in order for this body to work properly, we need all the members, right? If I was going to walk and get my leg cut off, my body is not going to function in the same way it was intended to If I only have one leg. Now I can get a prosthetic leg and I can do other things in order to try and work. But it's never going to work the way it was created and intended to be. So this is the same unity that it's being expressed here. And and Warren Rearsby shares another quote. I know I got a lot of quotes tonight but they were really, really good. So he shares a story about D.L. Moody in regard to this, this unity. He says... A man once criticized D.L. Moody's methods of evangelism. And Moody said, well, I'm always ready for improvement. What are your methods? And the man confessed that he had none. Well, Moody says, then I'll stick to my own. Warren comments, whatever methods we may use, we must seek to honor Christ, win the lost, and build the church. Some methods are definitely not scriptural. That is absolutely true. But there is plenty room for a variety in the church. There is plenty room for a variety in the church. As long as our methods are biblical and they seek to honor Christ, win the lost, and build the church, there shouldn't be disunity about methods. If they're biblical, if they're honoring Christ, if they're seeking to build the church and win the lost, we shouldn't be in an uproar about this. But I think the best example of unity that we have in Scripture is God himself. God is a God who is united. In his essence, he is three persons in one. He is united. Our Trinitarian God is united more than anyone else. We can see the aspect of the Spirit working together with the Son, the Son and the Spirit, the Father and the Son, the Father and the Spirit. We can see that all over the page of Scripture, right? 
it's clear that our God is united. There's no questions asked. So let us look to our example, first and foremost, to God, and let's follow his example of unity. Second characteristic that Peter gives, he says sympathy. He says sympathy. Some of your Bibles might translate compassion, depending on your translation. But uh, this sympathy is twofold. It means to the believer in the relationship with other brothers and sisters, and it is also for those who are persecuting them, those who are uh, inflicting this uh, unjust suffering. Sympathy is feeling with and for the needs of others. We see this in the greatest way in Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews shares with us, Christ is the great high priest, sympathizing with our own weaknesses. We are taught that we are one in Christ. We are brothers and sisters who are united by the precious blood of the Lamb. We are a family. We are a blood-bought family. So I want to ask you a question thinking about that. Now, think about your blood-bought family, or your blood-related family, rather, here on earth. You have a a mother, a father, maybe you have some brothers or sisters or uh, relatives, cousins, nieces, nephews. You have family. How are you supposed to treat them? Or how do you treat them? Or maybe a better question is, how should you treat them? Right? You should sympathize with them. You're to take care of their needs. You are to look out for them. Right? So, then why is it so hard when, when we bring that to the church and we now look at our brothers and sisters who we're going to spend eternity with and it's all of a sudden hard for us to sympathize with them. It's hard for us to empathize with them. Peter is saying we are to sympathize with our brothers, brothers and sisters and we are to sympathize with this in mind of, our, of Christ Jesus sympathizing with us as he was tempted like us yet didn't sin. Look to Christ. He is the greatest sympathizer. He is the greatest example. The third characteristic Peter gives is brotherly love. This is probably my favorite characteristic out of these five. is brotherly love. This is a direct love for the brothers. For the household of faith. Brothers and sisters alike. We can see evidence of this in the Bible. It's very clear. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love as I have loved you. Uh, those who are loved... Those who are of God love the brothers, and so on, right? Peter has already spoken of this, actually, in, in, in chapter 1, or chapter 2. I'm, I'm not sure which exactly chapter, when he said to love from a pure heart. And you're not born of uh, perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. And this is how you ought to love. If you are in Christ, you are able and you are equipped to love in this way. If you are in Christ... You are able and you are equipped to love in this way, to show this brotherly love. In fact, the apostle of love gives a very stern warning to those who don't, which is a direct reflection of the teaching of Jesus. If you look, if you're a quick flipper, you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. If not, that's okay, you can just read along. But... In 1 John chapter 4, in verses 6 and 7, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I want to quickly point out two observations from this text. Firstly, we see, if you are born of God, you will love. 
If you are born of God, you will love. This is no getting around it. This is not uh, an optional thing. You will love your brothers and sisters. It's assumed that you will do this. And secondly, on the flip side, according to this text, if you do not love, it's clear that you do not know God. If you do not love your brothers and sisters, it's evident that you do not know God. Why? Because God is love. This is not John's opinion. This is not Herb's opinion. It came directly from the mouth of Jesus himself. In John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35, and we don't have time to go through, together through that tonight, but I would encourage you guys to go read that for yourselves further. Don't trust me for it. Go test me. Be Berean. John 13, verses 31 through 35. And, and I'm just going to quickly uh, take a chunk out of it. Jesus said, as I have loved you, you're to He's talking about brotherly love. Do this as I have loved you. He's talking to the 12 disciples before he goes to the cross. And what he's saying, in other words, is love each other as I'm about to love you and going to the cross. That's the type of love that we should have for our brothers and sisters. The same love that Christ had when he went to the cross for you. And the fourth characteristic Peter gives is a tender heart. Some of your translations might read kind-hearted. It means the same thing. The ESV translation is a tender heart, which means caring, compassionate, not only in one's actions, but in feeling and emotion. This is a direct reflection of the grace of God. Throughout the gospel narratives, we see Jesus consistently see the crowds, and what did he do? He had compassion on them. He showed compassion towards them. He healed their afflictions, he healed their diseases, but most importantly, he healed their spiritual disease. And we see that Jesus had great compassion on those who were often neglected, the poor and the destitute. He has shown us compassion in the greatest form by taking on flesh, leaving his heavenly throne, and walking among us. He came and met us, the poor beggar, crying for a savior. Look to Jesus and learn from the greatest teacher who would not only taught about compassion, but he lived it. And finally, the fifth characteristic Peter gives is a humble mind. Some of your translations might read courteous or a humble spirit. One of the most essential truths to the Christian faith is humility. Christ is the first and greatest example of this. We see this throughout the pages of Scripture of his humility as he humbled himself, taking the form of man, leaving glory and walking among us, as I just read. But he didn't stop there. He emptied himself by taking the punishment of a criminal, then taking on death on the cross, as Peter, as uh, Paul lays out to his letter to the Philippians. And another example we see is Paul himself in his missionary journeys. So if you look with me briefly, you can, if you're a fast flipper, you can turn with me. It's to Acts chapter 20. And we read about uh, Paul speaking to the elders at Ephesus. And he's speaking to them, picking up in verse 18. Acts chapter 20, verse 18, we read, And when they came to him, the elders, he said, this is Paul, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. 
serving the Lord with all humility and with all tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jew and to the Greek of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, rather Paul, excuse me, was an example of a humble servant who walked with a humble mind as he engaged those who did not know Christ, both the Jew and the Greek. And what did he do? In verse 20, he taught them anything that was profitable, and mainly the gospel, a gospel of repentance, faith in Christ Jesus. So learn from Paul's example. So now I want to spend the rest of our time together thinking about this on a practical level. And we went through a lot tonight, so I just want to encourage you guys to live out these five characteristics. And I'm not going to say much, but I'm just going to read five passages of Scripture in light of these five characteristics, because Scripture is going to do way more than what you're going to hear from me. So number one, thinking about unity of mind. In Philippians chapter 2, in verses 1 through 11, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, we read, thinking about unity of mind. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to the, his, interests, his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One quick thing I want to point out from this text is verses 2 through 4, where Paul is saying, I want you to be of this unity of mind. And he says that it's yours in Christ Jesus. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So how do you have this unity of mind with your brothers and sisters? Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than you do yourself. Don't look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. And then we see that in the greatest example in the following verses, how Christ did that. Number two, sympathy. In Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 14 through 16, we read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive and find grace 
and to help in time of need. Quickly, thinking about this line of sympathy, right? Verse 15 says, We have a great high priest in Christ who's not able to, uh, he is not unable to sympathize, but rather he is able to sympathize with us because he was tempted. Think of Matthew 4 when he was tempted by Satan. He committed no sin, right? He said, no, as it is written, he rebuked Satan, right? It should give us confidence to draw near the throne because of what Christ has done. Number three, brotherly love, brotherly love. This is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. We read, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Verse 16, we see, we know love because of God's love. And we ought to lay down our lives as God has laid down his life, as Jesus has laid down his lives, his life, we ought to lay down our life, right? It's the continuation of this unity of mind, this sympathy, this brotherly love. And then, he, then he, John takes it a step further and he says, if you have the world's goods and you recognize, you see a need from your brother, yet you close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in you? And then verse 18, little children, don't, don't love people with your words. Love people with your actions, right? Your words, words are, are great. They're encouraging. They're very sharp and they can, they can hurt. So words matter, absolutely. But don't live in such a way that you're only a talker. If Christ, Christ didn't live only with his words, right? He didn't say, I'm, I will die for you. He didn't say that. He showed it by actually going to the cross. He laid down his life by going to the cross. He didn't say it. He did say it, but he fulfilled it by doing it, right? He backed up his words. His talk wasn't cheap. He backed it up. He backed it up in the greatest form. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. If you, if you see this trend of we're talking about Christ, we are. This whole, whole thing, the greatest example we can see is Jesus self. And him. Why go to any other illustration? Why go to any other thing? Christ is the greatest example of all these things, of all these characteristics. Christ is the greatest example. Number four. Number four. We're almost there. Number four, a tender heart. Ephesians 4.32 reads, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You want to be a tender-hearted person? Be kind to one another. You want to be kind to one another? Forgive one another as God forgave you. Once again, we see Christ. We are able to forgive because he has forgiven. Let that be the fuel that you use to forgive your brother and sister and others when they wrong you. And finally, number five, a humble mind. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 5 through 8. We read, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, 
like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you, have, you had become very dear to us. So I'll point out one example, and it's the example that Paul lays out in verse 7. He's showing this aspect of caring for them like a nursing mother would care for her child. We've got a young congregation in here. There's plenty of mothers that are newborns. We've got Harlow running around, right? So just as Caroline would care for baby Harlow, Paul is saying this is how he came to the church in Thessalonica. He had the authority, right? He had the authority to slam his fist, to use the rod. He had that authority. He was an apostle. But he didn't use that authority, right? He didn't use that authority, but rather he came in gentle. He came in meek. He came in with tact, and he came in gently, as a mother would get her baby caressing her gently. That's the same humble mind. This is the same aspect that what, what uh, Peter is getting at here. Now, as we close out our time together, I want to leave you guys with a quote from Charles Spurgeon in regard to brotherly love. He says, Unless I can leave off loving Jesus... I cannot cease loving those who love him. He says, I'm going to read it again. Short one, but it's so rich. Unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ, I cannot cease loving those who love him. We cannot cease to love our brothers. I encourage you guys, love each other as Christ has loved us. This is the new commandment. The new commandment. Let's pray. Father God, you're so gracious. You're faithful. Lord, we just think about even preaching tonight all these examples of Christ and the fullness of what you have done, Lord. Lord, we always pray and we ask to be about your business. Lord, you were about your, your Father's business. You weren't a talker. You, you, you talk, you spoke. You, we see that clearly in your word. We have your word. Your words are powerful. Lord, but you backed it up with your action. Lord, let us be a people that are about your business. Lord, I pray that you would do a working in our heart. Lord, that we talked about a lot. We covered a lot tonight. I pray, Lord, that the the people in this room would have been encouraged and that they would be convicted. Lord, that you would have done the work and you continue to do work, Lord. I pray that you would continue to do the work in the days ahead and that the seed that was planted tonight would continue to bring forth fruit that would Come 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, Lord, that we would see that fruit in eternity. Lord, have your way. Have your way in us. Protect it from the evil one. Protect it from being snatched, being choked out by the cares of this world. Protect it from falling on hard soil. Lord, let it grow. Let it grow deep and rich. Pray that you would give growth for your glory and our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.